On this bonus interview episode of Download, we talk to venerable film critic and journalist David Poland, discuss the importance of preserving the history of online journalism, and explore when it is appropriate to throw Jeffrey Wells from a moving car. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Hey guys, it's Download. I'm Joe Scott and uh, just taking a little break from working on the show to give you guys a little bonus content. We have an interview with David Pullen. Um, he is one of the old gods of internet movie journalism. Uh, he's a film critic as well, but I think he really made his bigger splash in journalism just through reporting. And uh, he worked with uh, several websites. The one that he made for himself was Movie City News, which he recently converted into a Substack. And we'll post a link to his Substack on the show notes for today's episode a little later. But uh, just some quick housekeeping. We're going to start by plugging our sponsor, which is to say that we have no sponsors. Um, it's just not something that I'm doing with this season of the show. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but I wanted to talk to you about $2, $2. It's a, a, an insignificant amount of money, but $2 can make a huge difference uh, for one kid who lives in my community. And I'll, I'll get into a little bit more detail here. I used to work with a local comic book shop in my town and I would help them host free comic book day where they gave a bunch of adults, mostly adults. Some kids did show up, but it was mostly adults bags of free comics and uh, they were kind of grumpy, uh, grouchy, very exacting in terms of what they wanted. It was fun at first, but it just became exhausting. And in 2015, I made a shift. Uh, what I did was uh, I got a bunch of cosplayers and comic book artists to show up to Title I schools, elementary schools, dressed as superheroes to hand out free comic books to children. And Unlike the adults who would complain and, and moan and bitch and just be really sour about not getting this or not getting that, these kids were just blown away. They were so excited to get these books, and it was just awesome to see the reactions. But I think more than that, as soon as they would get the books, they would, they would take the comics and open them and start reading. And that, to me, was uh, the real excitement, was just getting kids excited about reading. And uh, I've been doing this every year. We stopped when COVID happened, but I'm starting up again this year and I'm inviting. I'm not asking. I'm not requesting. I'm inviting you guys to help if you want. As an adult, I can say there is nothing I can buy for $2 that will give me as much joy as these kids get from a bag of free comic books. And that's exactly how much it costs to give one kid a bag of five free all ages appropriate comics. These are brand new comics. These aren't like used crap from the 90s. That's uh, not going to make a whole lot of sense to them. Uh, these are new comics. And so if you would like to sponsor a kid, uh, you can donate $2 to our uh, GoFundMe page, which we've linked on the episode notes here. Um, and it would just make a kid very happy. I'm going to cover this whole thing if I have to. 
but I'm inviting you guys to help as well. And a couple of other things, you know, I know that when people host GoFundMes, sometimes I feel like it's sort of an invitation for people to run scams. So everyone who contributes will get a full expense report. If for some chance we get more money than we actually need, I will just bank the remaining money with the comic book store that I'm working with uh, so that we can buy more books at cost uh, for kids uh, next year. And I'll give a full expense report to document all of that. Also, just pictures of the delivery. You'll get to see pictures of kids being excited to get the books that you helped to purchase them. So donate $2 today. Or if you want to help 10 kids, donate 20 but $2. And uh, again, you can find the link there on the notes to this show. A quick show update as well. I'm still working on... The remaining three episodes and uh, my biggest challenge always with these episodes is uh, editor's block and deciding what to take out of the story so that the episodes don't run like two or three hours long. And, uh, you know, the episode I'm working on right now, I've got it down to an hour and 40 minutes, which is still too long. So I've got to keep working on that uh, to get it to where I want it to be. But um, we're, we're making our... Uh, our goals, and I look forward to sharing these new episodes very soon. So now on to today's interview. Anne Thompson, a journalist from IndieWire, described David Poland, not Dave Poland. He doesn't like it when people call him Dave. I learned that in her interview. But she described David Poland as a reluctant journalist. But, you know, as far as critics go, he's a bit of a road dog. He's lived in a lot of different places, L.A., Chicago, Miami, Seattle, and probably other places I don't even know about. And, you know, he's worked for print publications like the Chicago Tribune, Entertainment Weekly. And then, you know, he also worked online. His first online venture was actually a movie news website created by TNT. They had this movie news show called Rough Cut. So they created a website to go along with it. You know, this is when media companies were spending lots of money on websites. And Dave Pullen, he got to run this website for TNT and it, it was huge. And he worked on the site, but then through no fault of his own, just corporations, marrying corporations and cutting whole teams of crews just to reduce uh, redundancies on their side. They pulled the plug on his site, causing people to lose years of their work and and you know history was erased when that happened and you know it, it erases the successes of the writers you know who may have written great articles or conducted great interviews but i think you know the other thing that erases too are sometimes just important stories rough cut did a lot of coverage of sundance which you'll hear about you know and there's a great chance that they wrote positive reviews or coverage of some of the movies that played at sundance and that might have been some of the only articles written about some of those films and it's just gone gone in the ether and that that's kind of why part of the reason i'm doing the show is to sort of capture a highly erasable history and uh you know we talk about that in our interview but uh the other thing i'll say is that with this much mileage in the world of film criticism it's safe to say that david has uh, accumulated some beef uh, from internet uh, supervillain Jeffrey Wells uh, to Roger Friedman, who used to work with uh, Fox News, to even Drew McWeeny from Ain't It Cool News, who's one of the primary characters in the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. Um, the one thing I want to say about beef is that when it comes to arguing about movies on the internet, I feel like all of us could do a better job of letting go of the beef. I've been guilty of this. You know, I think part of it is we we all grew up 
in our, like our small towns or even our big towns is like the movie guy. And then you get on the internet and you meet the movie guy from another town and you just start butting heads. And I, I've, I've described it as almost like being like beta fish. You know, you can't put two of them in the same bowl and the internet is a giant ball full of beta fish. And I just think that we could do a better job of, of letting go of the beef. The other day I posted on social media that we were going to be talking with David Poland on this bonus episode. And, and this one film critic and podcast host seemed a little miffed. And I know this person, he, he seems like a pretty cool, even kill guy, but uh, he seemed to be holding on to some discussions that went south with David um, maybe even decades ago. And part of me is like, hey, let that go. But then another part of me understands, you know, I used to hold on to beef over old arguments I had online about movies with this guy named Clay. You know, we just argued about movies. Our generation grew up watching Siskel and Ebert. And so I think that we got it in our minds. We're supposed to argue with people about movies. Those arguments are supposed to be nasty. Uh, One of us is supposed to win. One of us is supposed to lose. And I think it's kind of a shitty way to be. You know, and it makes these conversations less about movies and more about ourselves, uh, which I I think there's a little bit of narcissism there. And we got to start letting this stuff go. You know, and we're all getting older. Um, We're all getting closer each day to the age that we are going to die. And I think that when you're on your deathbed, I hope that none of us is laying there thinking, man, I, I wish I won that argument with that person I don't know personally on the internet about that movie that I can't even remember the name of the movie. It doesn't matter. I was right. God damn it. All of which goes to say, um, if you are Clayton and you know who you are and you're hearing me talk, um, sorry for being nasty sometimes. I, I think I, I said some mean shit while defending movies that I don't think they needed to be defended in that way. You know, like, I think everyone should just talk about uh, their opinions on movies and be cool with disagreeing in the end because it's fucking movies. But um, my challenge to everyone, squash the beef and not all of it, just the movie related stuff. I think that you still need to stay angry at people who hate our LGBTQ friends and neighbors, uh, also racists and misogynists. But uh, everyone else, let's just let it go. That's that's my soapbox there. So we're going to go ahead and jump into this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, There are a lot of great war stories. I really appreciated uh, hearing about Jeffrey Wells getting thrown out of a moving car. (laughs) It's just funny. And uh, it it was great to learn about that. So I hope you enjoy it. And here's David Poland. Right, I just want to welcome to the show and a, a film critic and a journalist that I've followed for a long time. Um, just he appeared in a lot of circles that sort of ran parallel to Ain't It Cool News. Yeah. And I'm sure he's proud of that fact. But uh I don't know about that. <laughs> sort of the attempt, I think, in some ways to legitimize the online film journalist. But uh he's the creator of Movie City News, uh, David Poland. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Surprised, so, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've often described yourself as the reluctant journalist. And I guess. It's funny when I, when this all started in terms of being online, Roger Ebert was actually very kind enough to uh, kind of kick me off 
with a lot of publicity. And he said, he used to call me, say that I was the, it was a, I was a gossip in the very best way. <laughs> and it made me crazy a little bit because I did think of myself as more of a journalist. I actually came from, you know, when I started journalism it was pretty late in life in my career, but, um, you know, I was, took it seriously. So it was always an interesting uh, wrestling match with him about that. So how did you get into journalism? What, what sort of attracted you to this industry? I had been in the business from the time I was seven, 18 years old, I guess, 17, 18 years old in New York. Uh, I had done theater, I had done television, I had done film, um, different capacities. Um, and I ultimately had kind of hit a place where I was screenwriting and not happy. Uh, I'd made a couple terrible movies for a company and um, it was, I was, I decided that was not really what I wanted to be doing with my life. And I went to Chicago for a year to do a theater company because I wanted to do more political uh, improv. And um, I found out that of course people can make a real living in Chicago doing improv. I didn't have money set up. I didn't really want to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars to start an improv troupe. And um, I ended up kind of creating what ended up being the hot button, which what would be the hot button on, on roughcut.com in 97 um, while I was there, but nobody wanted to buy it because nobody knew who I was or anything. <laughs> so I started writing for the Tribune. I started freelancing for a bunch of different newspapers around the country. Um, and ultimately that led to Entertainment Weekly, which is but kind you, of the steeping in it. Yeah, so you kind of went... I think in the opposite direction, you know, where a lot of film critics and film journalists are described as, as wannabe screenwriters, you were a screenwriter who became a journalist. You went the opposite direction. Yeah, but I'd also been a producer. I'd also been a, a you know, I'd done a lot of things. So when I got to screenwriting, I uh, wasn't sure that that's, I thought it was what I wanted to do. And I, I think it was kind of a means to an end towards making movies on some other level. Um, but I had a, this kind of like very fortunate, but very miserable experience. <laughs> what so, happened? So what happened? There was a guy named Chuck Freeze who is now passed. Yeah. Uh, but a company that was mostly a TV company. And um, somehow I got hooked in there through a friend. I was actually reading scripts at one point, I think. And I ended up getting a gig doing a rewrite. And um, so we were basically, they were trying me out or whatever. And then I was in the process of making, I made him, was involved with the making of a movie there from the point of rewriting and also kind of, I don't know what I was at that point. And um, then I started to do, I did a couple other scripts for them. And um, the one that, you know, was finally my rewrite, which was had been rewritten maybe by eight or 10 different writers or teams that I, I was very familiar with. Um, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that I'm rewriting, you know, this this writer or that writer, it got made. And when it got made, I was the script was completely destroyed as the production happened. And I quit after a couple of days from the on set. And then I went back <laughs> to try what to was, fix it. What was the movie? It was called Under Surveillance originally. I don't even know what it's called now. It's a, it was, um, uh, what the hell is his name? The guy who was the Bond villain, Robert Davi. Who was very hot? He was a villain in Robert, in uh, View to a Kill, <laughs> and he had become he was kind of like hot actor at that moment, relatively. I mean, this is a relatively low budget movie, but he was the lead, and uh, Melody Melody Anderson from uh, Flash Gordon. 
ended up being the female lead. We'd gone through a number of actresses that were just not sexy enough for this director. <laughs> it was a very weird. Um, he was kind of just casting this thing with his dick. No, it was the opposite. It was the opposite direction. For some reason, his penis didn't actually understand what women were supposed to look like. <laughs> so, okay. but the, the brunette from, uh, from Clark and Lois. And oh, Desperate Housewives. Terry Hatcher? Terry Hatcher, not sexy enough for him. Okay. That was his All thing. Right. Terry Hatcher wasn't sexy enough. Just didn't make the um, cut. Huh? Just didn't make the cut. Just couldn't make the cut. She wasn't sexy. So we ended up with Melody, who was very nice and very attractive, but in a kind of, uh, you know, 20 year older kind of way. Okay. <laughs> or 10 years older kind of way. Yeah. So anyway, it was that kind of thing that was going on that was craziness. Anyway, so I quit. And then they, and also they wanted to make it into a film noir after I'd been hired to make it into a buddy comedy. <laughs> so uh, Davi and the director kind of conspired to rewrite the script on the fly. And after a couple of days of that, I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I can't do this, so I quit. They sent me, and then about a week later, they called me and they said, you have to come back. We need to fix this. They're changing it into this thing that we don't know what the movie is anymore. We don't know how it's gonna cut together. And uh, I went back and tried to fix it. I looked at all the dailies and everything. and. Uh, came back for about three more days and then I quit again because they still weren't doing it correctly. Davi's hairdresser was rewriting the movie at that point. So that's and actually all the, all the actors were rewriting the movie at that point. Each of them now felt the three leads felt that they each had the right because Davi took the option to do it, that all of them had the right now to start rewriting their characters. What a horror show that was. It was. And I, and, and, you know, having been a rating books about, uh, you know, great screenwriters, um, and particularly William Goldman uh, had told a story in one of his books about uh, arguing over a tie, the color of a tie with an executive for days, literally for days of his time. He was getting paid a million dollars a movie. I was not. Um, and so the idea that I would somehow reach the pinnacle of screenwriting someday and still have to put up with that shit was just not really an option for me. So I left, I stopped. You tapped out. I tapped out, went to Chicago. And uh, eventually in Chicago, ended up writing stuff for the Tribune, small pieces. And so the Chicago Connect was kind of how you got familiar with uh, Roger Ebert? Uh, yes. Yes and no, because ultimately, um, I think he really got to know me through what ended up being the rough cut stuff. And that's when he kind of got into me, as it were. I was at the Tribune. I was doing stuff for the Tribune. So it's the rival paper. I had met Roger because of that. I had met all the Chicago film critics because of that. Um, you know, Michael Wilmington actually ended up working for me eventually. Some other people from the Tribune ended up working for me years later. Um, but I, so I met Roger that way, but it's, he really was, it was really when I started doing the daily column uh, in 97 that he, or started as a weekly column, then it became the daily column um, that he hooked into me and started, you know, saying nice things about me. He really did too. He really, you know, if, you were to look at sort of online writers that he praised there. I think two of the biggest ones were Harry Knowles and then you, he was a really big fan of uh, Dave Poland. He was, and it, it, David is the preferred, but yes, I don't know whether he ever called me Dave or not, but um, <laughs> yes, Harry was definitely an obsession of his. Absolutely. Um, but he started writing about, he had a column in Yahoo Hollywood life magazine or Yahoo mm -hmm. internet life magazine, I think it was called. And uh, he would write occasionally about me, which was very nice and, you know, helped my, my little tiny internet star rise. 
so wow I, I can go two different directions here one is why do you think roger ebert was so obsessed with harry Knowles? i think roger i think the conversation between critics um had a certain flavor <laughs> uh when it before the internet and i think harry was this upstart who clearly loved movies who clearly knew movies um and he believed in that and he, he he found that he respected that enormously so here was a guy who wasn't the guy you know a lot of those guys were have been critics since if you look at new york and national film critic society of film critics you see a lot of guys who are writing for in, in that group and writing in the 60s and early 70s um and here we are in the late 90s and it's still kind of the same group of people it's yeah. a you know you've lost a few <laughs> at that point saris was still writing Pauline was not writing anymore, but um, uh, the world was changing and Roger was always obsessed with the internet for one thing. He was like the Mr. CompuServe. It, it was with the early days of Roger Ebert online were all about CompuServe. So, um, which is where it started, you know, there or AOL for everybody pretty much. Um, so he was like an early online adapter and uh, would actually end up investing in Google in the first round, um, <laughs> which became very successful for him and his, his lovely bride, who is still around and doing great things. And um, yeah, he was just into it. So I think, and also, you know, he, Roger was Roger in that pairing. He was the fat guy, you know, he was the other guy. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think that, so he saw past whatever Harry you know, look like, or, and that he didn't really, that was never a consideration for him. Um, and in fact, perhaps something that he liked to engage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I spoke to Don Dupree, who was um, Ebert's director. And yeah. I think one of the things he said that uh, Ebert responded to was just Harry's outsider status and how he mm -hmm. kind of felt that a lot about himself because he wasn't New York or LA, you know, right. he was a Chicago critic. Well, even with Gene, I think the relationship was, um, you know, he was the second guy, even though he wasn't for a lot of people. Um, people took him more seriously as a critic, I think, a lot of people. But he was, he was always fighting, you know, being the fat guy, as it were, in that group, in that pairing. Yeah. And um, I, I think that was, you know, part of what his thing was. He's also, you know, it's funny, when he started the, his film festival in Champaign-Urbana, which is an annual thing, been going on for now for probably 15, 17, 18 years. Um, yeah. It was called originally the Overlooked Film Festival because the idea that he wanted was to show films that had not gotten enough attention. Um, so we always had that underdog spirit. That was always part of his thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the very first ones he hosted that the film, the centerpiece film was Dark City, which was yes. his favorite film of that year that, yeah. you know, just made very little noise in theaters before it was hustled on out. Well, it made a lot of noise because it was so people were kind of disappointed and it didn't do business and people thought it was going to. And then I actually was part of that Q&A. We did, he actually did a, a hookup with the um, director from Australia. Uh, oh, yeah. In Champaign-Urbana on stage. <laughs> this is before <laughs> Zoom. This is long before Zoom. This is, the internet was still pretty early and it was a bad hookup. It wasn't, even that was... Even the audio was not very good, but it was, he was live with us in the theater and did answer questions and did all that stuff. He couldn't come up. He ended up having a bunch of people come up from Australia and other places like that over the years. But um, yeah, that was, Dark City was a big one, but it was all kinds of um, 
obscure things or, or filmmakers that he loved that were not getting enough attention. He actually got uh, one of Romer's films that had not been distributed domestically, got to distributed out of that festival. Um, and then after a few years, people were embarrassed by being called overlooked. So he changed it to Ebert. It became Ebert Fest. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's <laughs> the, the trick there is that yeah. that was his angle, but that wasn't necessarily one that you would prefer from a well, talent was there. He talent tended to show up in lovely Champaign-Urbana, which is a tiny town. Yeah. And, you know, stay in the college dorms, essentially in our, in the, in the union, uh, they would have, you know, the hotel there, which is a teaching hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people were actually there repping their films. <laughs> so to call them overlooked was a little, and some of them did become, he got bigger films, bigger talent coming in and, you know, uh, yeah. Aaron Morris would come in or yeah, Werner Herzog or whomever. And, you know, they weren't over, they didn't feel so overlooked. You did, you did some work on the show though. I did four or five episodes. Yeah. I did the last episode before they decided to not do any more guest hosts. <laughs> <laughs> you you kind of broke it broke it down well i was i was actually brought in because somebody else had broken it down and they had somebody in who roger thought might be good who was a writer for the new york times not one of the critics not one of the primary critics at least and um he just couldn't do it it was just a bad the show was so bad that i got a phone i was in vegas for show west where i think i actually may have already fought with drew for the first time um with drew mcqueenie um, and I got a call on a, I think it was Tuesday morning that they were, they needed me to, they asked me to come because I, I had done a bunch of them and they knew what they were getting. And our, I had seen some of the films that, you know, he had already seen. And, um, I flew into Chicago during show West on a Tuesday morning, got there Tuesday evening in Chicago, taped the show on Wednesday morning. They usually tape on Monday and, um, that and did and then flew back to Chicago. I mean, back to Vegas because I had to do a live event there that we were doing for Fox at the time, and um, that ended up being the show where Disney finally said, "Okay, enough with the guest critics." So they then had they pared it down to three different options, and they ended up going ultimately with uh, Roper. You know, I uh, I used to write letters, emails to Answer Man. That was Roger Ebert's uh, mm -hmm. Q and A column. And I would write all the time. And one of the times I was like a kid in high school. So like, oh, I have an idea. You should have a contest. And whoever writes the best review can be a guest host on your show. And he wrote back, if I made a dollar every time someone suggested that I would be <laughs> wealthy. And he's like, and the reason that's a terrible idea is because when you're working with people who've never done TV before, you know, they, they fuck the show up and you waste a bunch of time and money. And uh, he seemed actually a little burned out by that whole experience. And, and that, was well, a lot of people, and he had good people. There were people who, you know, Manola Dardis would not do it, for instance. She would have been a very likely candidate to re be the replacement, but um, she would not go on television. Um, and then there were people who he thought were going to be good that weren't so good or were too much like him in age and, and whatever. It's very complicated to try to recreate that magic that the two of them had. Yeah. And Disney, with the person, you know, running it for Disney was the same person who was doing, uh, replacing Regis Philbin on that show, you know, mm -hmm. so that was their mindset. There was a very, um, they weren't really interested in finding a weird quirky combination. They were really, you know, they weren't looking forward to, you know, film critic. In fact, the three people who were up for it at the end, none of them were actually film critics at that time. Yeah, um, Richard Roper wasn't a critic. 
was not a film critic. He had done written a couple pieces, but he had basically not was not a film critic, cultural critic. He'd written a book, I think. Yeah. And um, actually, Joyce Kaholik from Boston was a critic on television in Boston, but she wouldn't move to Chicago from Boston. And uh, the third person was a wonderful host who's still on the air out here in Los Angeles, but uh, was Canadian, which is a bit of a problem. She didn't live in Chicago. They decided they wanted somebody to live in Chicago because of um, just timing. Roger yeah. DeVere was very steady in his schedule and wanted to keep his schedule. Yeah. So I would have probably moved to Chicago, but Disney never really loved me. So they like me better than Harry, but not by a lot. Well, you know, because that was one thing that um, Steve Prokopi said was that Harry kind of had aspirations of being the permanent co-host. Um, what? How would you describe those chances of that? Zero. There was no yeah. chance, unfortunately. Um, I, I Well, you know, the, as the story went, uh, Mrs., uh, Mrs. E, Mrs. Siskel when she was told that uh, Harry was going to guest host, insisted that Jean's chair be removed from the set, and that that Roger that that uh, Harry not actually sit in the same chair that Jean had sat in, um, and it wasn't even like she didn't she'd only had the you know the, a very very sideways glance at Harry, but it was you know she was image conscious that way, and she did think the internet thing was a bit of an offense to her husband's memory or. Um, so it was, it was not, you know, that was a problem. And then a, she, the thing is, Harry was a mixed bag on camera. Also, it wasn't yeah, like yeah. he was easy. You know, I think if the magic thing had clicked in with any of us, um, that may have happened, but, and if it was Harry, it was Harry, but, uh, I think for, even from the beginning, Disney was pretty much against him. Yeah. I, I can't imagine based on, you know, and we talked about this, uh, via Twitter, but Don Dupree had a lot of problems working with Harry. There, there seemed to be some friction there between them as well. Just he was constantly on Harry about wardrobe. He wanted Harry looking more telegenic, which probably wasn't Harry's forte at that time. Well, and, Harry didn't care. I mean, that's yeah. the thing about Harry over the years. I've People have said terrible things about Harry that I don't concur with or I've never thought myself or wanted to or written at all myself. You'll never find a word me talking about Harry's weight or whatever yeah. uh, online, but um, he seemed to not, part of his thing was not caring. I think at that point, Yeah, you know, it was like, that was part of the rebellion of it all. And I think ABC was still hoping the show would work and it never, you know, the Roper years were, are, are you know, their own thing. <laughs> yeah. So it became so long enough that it, you know, it became established, but he was never really, he, he never had a film critics mentality. He never had the passion for movies that Harry had um, or that I had, or that a lot of other people had. I think it speaks volumes that, you know, when, when Ebert ultimately had to leave the show that they didn't come back with Robert Roper. Well, yes, but you know, that was another Richard never really showed the uh, uh, proclivity to you know, be the guy to have the Roper show. Yeah, um, he just wasn't that guy, and he he actually became more of a film critic and a better film critic, and he became more vested. And he's still writing criticism now, mm -hmm. but um, he never. I mean, it was for me that was the tragedy of that spot in a way, was that somebody could have made that into something, mm -hmm. and made because Roger is really really important. You know, Roger, besides the celebrity of it and all that <clears throat> Roger was very invested in um, building things and making cinema better. 
Yeah. And he had very strong feelings and he expressed them and he wrote books and he, you know, he went to events and he, he, he really spouted the gospel of cinema and Richard never did. You know, in the years that Gene, the years before Roger lost his voice, um, he never went to the Ebert Fest. He never went to Overlook, not once. Mm. Um, it just wasn't, you know, and he's two hours away in Chicago. And he just, you know, I got whatever reasons he had. I never had a conversation with him because he and I didn't get along so well. But, <laughs> um, you know, he never was invested in, okay, you know, oh, you're doing this thing in Champagne. This sounds so exciting. I'm going to see movies I've never seen before on a big screen with an audience and it's exciting, it's fun. No, nope, didn't show up. Um, so, you know, he just wasn't that guy. And I don't know, there are other people who may have gotten the job and also not been that person. Um, but there were people who actually, I think, could have built it into, if not the next Roger Ebert, into even, you know, forget about doing a TV show because that's, Disney lost money on that show at times and whatever. But, um, you know, they may not have had that, but they would have had something. Yeah. And Richard just is still in Chicago writing, now rewrites criticism. He does it on the radio. He's basically a radio DJ guy, you know, morning show kind of guy. And, um, you know, God bless him, but he didn't turn it, he didn't build it. So trying to wrap my head around sort of your story though, because yeah. you, you went to Entertainment Weekly and then you created your website. No, yeah, well, I got, cre- I got, I got recruited out of uh, CinemaCon or what's ne- what now CinemaCon was called Show West excuse me, after a few years by Entertainment Weekly. And I worked for them for a couple of years. And in the midst of that, I was recruited for what was called roughcut.com, which was TNT Cable's movie website, which we never understood why they were funding it, but they were. And it was a lot of money. Even now, that would have been, they, the, the funding would have been very nice for a lot of these websites that you see out there to have. Um, I remember that website. Yeah, well, that was Andy Jones had started it for them. And um, I went to work there and then I did a weekly column when I started in 97, uh, in the summer of 97. And then I decided I, my father passed away and I had had this idea for this daily column uh, in Chicago. It was actually a weekly originally, but it was this idea of just doing a bunch of different pieces and having kind of a, a set structure for it. And that became the hot button uh, in August of 97. And then in 98, they started doing second page, secondary pages on the internet. Back then it was only like a daily page. <laughs> so I had like 250 words a day when I started. And then six, eight months later, um, I had you know as much space as I had wanted. And then I was doing 2000 words a day for I think five or six years, never missing a column for six, for six days a week. Um, because I was insane and young and single and all that stuff. And um, that's where I really built my base of uh, for the internet. And then at that ended when AOL bought Time Warner and they basically killed all the projects, all the internet projects that were not AOL projects. The, the Turner projects. Well, they were, Turner was one of the things, but really anything that was an internet thing that conflicted with AOL's branding that had been existing for, you know, at that point, five or 10 years or whatever it was, um, they just dumped. And we were actually at Sundance in the middle of a Sundance. And I had a staff of like 13 or 14 people at Sundance with me. We were printing a daily newsletter there. We were, you know, had a number of critics. We were making short films. Um, we had a, you know, culture person, somebody going to parties at night, basically. Um, and it was a big thing. And two or three days in, I get a phone call. You have to come back to LA. 
and we were in for a pretty good chunk of money at that point. You have to come back to LA. It's over. You're all being fired. Don't tell anybody. So I told everybody. Um, <laughs> well, good on people, you, man. That's great. Well, I was like, I gave people the option of going back or staying, you know, because we were in the middle of doing something and a bunch of people were freelancers who weren't really Time Warner employees. They weren't getting fired, fired. Um, so it was like, you got to have, I, I thought it was unfair to have people working for another week not knowing, you know, knowing they're going home to getting fired. It's yeah. unkind. And it was Very a bit of a rebellion in the in the force at that point. Um, some people did some shitty things, but sorry, if I don't know that you're using. No, it's okay. I can, it's okay. Language in your thing. But um, yeah, so we ended, I ended up talking them into letting us stay the rest of the week because we already paid for most everything. And um, some people did go back. Uh, and that was the end of Rough Cut. Um, and then I said something that was quoted in the Wall Street Journal that was not nice about AOL. <laughs> and they actually removed the site completely. So this group of people who had already done a week's worth, you know, all this work for Sundance and we're using this as a, uh, you know, we're using this as uh, essentially as, you know, bait for their next jobs and everything else. All that disappeared instantly. They lost their portfolio. They lost their portfolio. I had, a, I fortunately I had a legal agreement to get most of my stuff back, but um, you know, or get it under contract. So anyway, uh, ultimately, ten months later, after a dalliance with running, creating a website with myself, Jeff Wells, Nikki Fink, and Ann Thompson in two thousand and two, in two thousand and one. Oh, two thousand one. Oh. During the right, yeah, before nine eleven. Great timing. Uh, or you know what? Yeah, it's before. No, you're right. Actually, I, you're you're I actually got a job. Forgetting something, I forgot a job. I got a job running a film festival. So I did a film festival. I ran Miami Film Festival for a year, um, changing everything to what they're doing now. But then getting fired for it, which was lovely. Uh, there was a rebellion because I wasn't a Cuban male going. A Cuban, I was replacing a guy who'd been there for eight. Who started the festival? Been there a very long time. Who was very loved in Miami, Nat Chediak. And um, I was young and brash and um, expanded the festival beyond the Cuban community. And that got me murdered by the Miami Herald. So did you deal <laughs> by with Renee uh, Rodriguez? Huh? You dealt with Renee Rodriguez on that? Renee Rodriguez um, actually promoted me for the job. I already had it, but he told them that I sh they should hire me because he was a fan of the column. And then he proceeded to help murder me at the, uh, during the, after the festival. Because there was just this, this thing about the festival changed dramatically in that year. We opened it up to other places and things like, and to other people. And it wasn't the festival it had been, but it was a much bigger festival. And, um, you know, one film, one film didn't get there from, uh, from Asia. It, didn't, it wasn't delivered on time. So we ended up refunding tickets and we booked something else or whatever. This is the first time ever that the Miami Film Festival didn't have a film show up. I had a hundred films, they had 25 and you know, one of my films didn't show up and I was the murderer. So that's kind of how they treated it. And the uh, people who ran it, owned it at the time were not really, didn't have a backbone. They don't run it anymore. Um, and I've forgiven Renee for the most part but it was horrifying when it happened. Um, Cause I really did love doing it. And there were, there were problems, you know, there were things that every film festival has but cause I was used to bigger film festivals um, but they, shredded me so anyway i worked um, in re repertory film screenings for a long time and 
it is easy for a movie to get lost yes uh, to not make it especially if you're reliant on 35 millimeter film which we were yeah and we actually had the crew from my from the toronto film festival was running our film department and moving these giant you know wheels of uh flatbeds of, of film around the city from festival from things that we never had a problem with the screening going off we never weren't late we weren't but we did have one film not show up um, we also did a screening on the beach for like five to ten thousand people for two nights and uh, we celebrated one from the heart's 20th anniversary um and we also had uh moulin rouge on the beach and it was great success except that wasn't good enough because we had screwed up the other part of the festival anyway that's a longer story whole other story um but so i left that or was let was let go uh i guess and not happy and then we started go looking into that so that was after 9 11 that was now 2002 you're correct and then uh in 2002 we we had these we were all kind of floating out there um and we had meetings with nikki and and thompson and jeff and myself and of course, Nikki didn't show up, but that's a whole other story. She <laughs> called in by phone and um, it just was not going to work. We were going to murder each other pretty quickly. And there was no immediate cash source and whatever. So I ended up starting with a partner um, uh, who was more of a business side partner and an editor type and a technology type um, named Laura, uh, Laura Rooney. Um, <laughs> started... Uh, Movie City News in October of that year. Well, you know, so that meeting though, where you're, you're sort of discussing yeah. plans, everyone who was there, you guys sort of broke up and kind of created these solo projects independent of each other that sort of represent We were, each, the, yeah, we were but, each in the business in different ways. We already had established ourselves in different ways. Um, you know, my column had credit, started Jeffrey getting a column on another website, a few other websites, including the long forgotten Kevin Smith's movie poop shoot.com. Yes. The joke that then became real. It was the joke in his movie, yes. Jay and Silent Bob strike back. And then he just made it real. But then people wouldn't book talent for it because they were embarrassed. So the studios were offended by the title to such a degree that they wouldn't even like, they wouldn't tell an actor's uh, publicist. You have something for movie poop shoot.com. <laughs> they would complain about this. And Jeff has his own <laughs> issues, of course. Um, but yeah, Ann Thompson was putting her, her child was just about to go off to college and she needed a more steady income. And Nikki was, of course, completely insane. Um, and, uh, you know, it was uh, it, it was good that we all separated. Yeah. Well, you know, sort of like the talking heads, like or the Velvet Underground. It just before we even started. Yes. Before we were before we had one hit. Yeah. yeah, I think we were talking about calling ourselves uh, what is it? The Fear Factor, which would be the name of the website, something like that. We should have trademarked that name. That would have yeah. uh, that would have paid off later. I <laughs> you know. know we could have we could have we could have been something. We could have been a contender. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it, it, I think it's worked out for everybody to whatever degree. So you, you, your your site launched. Yeah, and it ran until 2018. I, I guess how how was that experience? It still exists. It's still there. Oh, well, you had, um, you had announced in 2018 that you were. Yeah. Well, I did. I, I stopped working. I stopped doing it and started consulting on uh, movies. But um, then I came back eventually. And you came but back. I, it's in it, now it's the newsletter. So, you know, it kind of like came back. Movie City News kind of started again, kind of didn't. Um, but the growth of Movie City News and, you know, I had a fairly decent sized staff for a while. 
Um, that was all before the first closure. You ran a legit operation. You guys were really trying to take this very seriously. And, and what was it like to sort of do that, sort of running parallel to Ain't It Cool News, which was just this crazy place that didn't, did not take the work as seriously. And they were not paying their staff. Um, but at the same time, they were getting a lot of attention. You know, they were getting blurbed a lot. What, what, was, this, what was your feeling on that? Well, I, I would say that the, the, the golden days of Anacool News were really in some ways before Movie City News launched. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it still was there Absolutely. and still had a significant presence when Movie City News went to business, but um, it was really those early years in Rough Cut where the, the conflicts were hot and heavy uh, in that place. And it was, you know, they also changed what they were. Um, you know, people have, my, my friend Drew, who I, angrier at me than I have ever been at him. Um, shocking. Uh, but, um, you know, they were, the, the first time I ever met Drew in person was him screaming at me online at the at Show West <laughs> about how I just didn't get it. I didn't understand. Why was I saying these things about them? Um, <laughs> which I think he actually now denies. He actually claims that we, that that never happened, but. Was this the, the Show West in 1999? Uh, like it could what? be. The one where they, where, you know, there's, there are a couple of articles written about Ain't It Cool News at yeah. Show West in 99, where they were basically the bell of the ball, like, and you had publicists really sort of hailing them. And it may have been that, it may have been 98. Um, it, you know, it wasn't, they were there and they were getting credentialed as, I mean, this is always the giant conflict between Ain't It Cool News and the quote unquote news people or the people who actually were journalists of some kind was, you know, they would say, we're not journalists, we're film advocates. <laughs> yeah, that's all we, we're not. So but they wanted all the toys, they wanted all the benefits of being film journalists. They wanted all the access, they wanted all the stuff. And then they wanted special stuff because they were in cool news, which they were. I mean, there was a, a significant footprint for cool news for years. Um, but they, you know, they played this game where they were pros and not pros at the same time. And I think that's where a lot of the conflict with other media came. Uh, and that was my biggest complaint about them was, you know, they, there was an ongoing argument. This thing was stolen off of so-and-so's desk <laughs> by an assistant or whatever and, and faxed to Anacle News. And now such mo- this movie lost an, an EW cover, for instance. Yeah. And they would, and Drew would rage. Harry wouldn't really respond, barely. But Drew would, you know, rage on about how that's a lie. We never stole anything. It never happened. You know, but they had this real history where, you know, in those first number of years, their whole thing was um, they were getting information. I mean, eventually, pretty quickly, filmmakers were feeding them stuff also. So that's true yeah. as well. But there was a lot of stuff that they did not belong having Yeah, um, that they stole, essentially. They don't see it that way. They didn't see it that way. They didn't see themselves as, you know, they, they still they, don't. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, some of their people did. You know, some of those people who had fake names back then, many of whom were in your podcast, um, who I'm some of whom I'm friends with, um, you know, took it more seriously. And there was a change in the tone of where it was. But, you know, you, you, I don't think you mentioned or maybe I missed it, but, uh, you know, the presence <laughs> with a W we- party, you know, where he, he was asking on in his column for presence from people for his yeah. birthday. I didn't you know, get into the details on the presence, but one detail, one thing about that that struck me as odd even then was that he listed every movie he currently owned on 
VHS or DVD so that if you were going to buy him a present that you didn't buy him the same thing he already had, like that would be terrible. And that, that was uh, strange. And the relationships he had were, you know, were real, but you know, like Guillermo and, and Peter Jackson and whatever, they were all very important and they all were very real. Yeah. Um, um, so there was some degree of jealousy or some degree of frustration. I think that he had such carte blanche and nobody would do any of this stuff for anybody else. Studios were setting stuff down to Butnamathon that they wouldn't give anybody else access to. Yeah. Um, and Butnamathon was his fiefdom. So it wasn't like you could go cover it like it was a film festival. You know, you had to be let in essentially. Yeah. So it was um, a lot of that was frustrating for, you know, everybody. And then there were people who complained publicly about things they were doing while they were also, on the other hand, feeding him stuff. Um, because essentially it was a way of getting news out, you know, yeah. it was like, and ultimately Drudge follow, Drudge was uh, generous with them and would link to stuff. Um, you know, that became a source. That's how Nikki, one of Nikki Fink's big things in developing her business was that Drudge would link her. Um, and that was, you know, va very valuable to the studios because she would run whatever they told her to and then Drudge would link to it. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's another, and that still happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, if you're in Drudge's favor, that's another bunch of eyeballs that are not easily gotten otherwise. So, um, you know, it all became about syndication in a way. And Harry had this very unique position. Yeah. So I guess Show West, for people who've never been, and, and I, I used to work in film exhibitions, so I know a lot about it, but you know, it's kind of its own weird culture. And for a while, they didn't let the general public attend. You know, you had to own a theater to go to this event where they're literally just trying to ply you into booking <laughs> films for theaters. And they brought some press there as well. How would you describe Show West having, having experienced that? Well, for press, it was the greatest event in the world. And I actually started going to Show West uh, for the Tribune uh, back in sometime in the 90s um and the reason one of the reasons and i even after i decided at one point i decided not to do entertainment journalism anymore it's a whole nother story about this terrible i uncovered a, a massive uh, conspiracy around the movie and nobody would publish the story for all kinds of reasons um and it i wanted to kill everybody and i was like i'm done with entertainment journalism i actually had engagements with the trade publishers who told me yeah we're really not into journalism um <laughs> But I kept on going back to Show West. I would book, uh, I would book freelance gigs with different newspapers in order to go back to Show West every year because you were, as a journalist, there were maybe thirty of us there at the time, total, and they would treat you like you were just a member of the group of people coming to Show West, which was basically a three or four day, depending on if you were doing international or not, um, party where. In the morning, you'd have breakfast sponsored by this studio. Then you'd have lunch and a, and a reel for sponsored by this studio. And then you'd have dinner and a party afterwards sponsored by another studio. Um, and so you were seeing the earliest versions of all these movies. You were seeing trailers before they were trailers. Um, it really gave you a sense, you know, it took place generally in March. It gave you a full sense of what the year to come was at the studio level. And yeah. back then the studios were everything forget about streaming, you know, there, there was no streaming, obviously, but it was like, you would really get a sense of, you know, 
always remember the minute I saw Forrest Gump or, you know, and they'd have these, one of the most amazing events ever was uh, Lion King. Disney always had a nice event in the evening with a big show. Lion King was, they actually, it, there, there was no Lion King, the movie hadn't come out, so they didn't do a Broadway show yet, but they came and they did these performances in the aisles of the movie, of the theater when they showed the movie, which wasn't quite complete when they showed it. And so they had people on stilts and they had people playing animals and they had all that stuff it was a fantastic show. And then they took you to a tent that was a circus tent and they had live animals there. So you could pick your picture with live animals or pet them. I mean, it was that kind of like giant showmanship from the past. In my research, you know, I found a lot of interesting stories about Show West and about Harry and Drew's experiences there. And one of, one of the things that struck me as odd is I think this is one of the few times early on where they would see each other in person. But um, there was one article in particular where Harry, <laughs> Harry is just writing about it's, it's a two handed article, like they're sort of alternating. But Harry's just writing about his experience in a strip club. And then <laughs> intermittently, Drew is writing about the movies <laughs> that are being previewed. Like he's trying to like pull the site away from the hairiness of it all. Yeah. And and really make it legit. Like these are the movies that are coming out where Harry, he's literally describing the bodies of these dancers and just how drunk he's getting and and the, the fun he's having. And you really did sort of see the two heads of this, of this beast. And I guess as someone who looked at this from the outside, how would you view the relationship between Harry and Drew? Well, the thing is, I, you know, there was always multiple char other characters as well. And, and each, it, they would grow their fiefdoms, you know, so people would become more powerful, whatever. And there was obviously a distinction between Drew and Harry's writing uh, from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, but Drew had some hairiness in him more than, you know, he wasn't exactly, a, you know, a, a, a died in the wool classic film critic, you know, he, which he's become even more and more, you know, bringing his, you know, my boys to the show or whatever. You know, his, he allowed the personal to come in more than most traditional film critics would have. Um, Harry was just all over the place. Um, and, you know, none of us from the outside, I don't think any of us knew. And part of it was, a lot of stuff was still secret back then. Yeah. Um, and I was not inclined. I was not part of the group. I was not one of their friends. Um, I did have friends who were, who were, you know, had names, had aliases on Anical News. So I knew some things that I wasn't supposed to know, but I wasn't, it wasn't like I was busy trying to investigate the true inside story of, you know, how these guys related. Anical News was, um, it was fascinating because they had this access that was unique and special. And then the writing was sometimes just junk. It felt like sometimes you know, it was, people it was took junk. it seriously in a way that was like, who cares? And, and no, did a Nicole news ever, you know, did they really move the bar on this? They really, they were very proud in many ways of, you know, the power they, they, you know, put out, but the truth is, did they real? they did have, it's a funny thing with Hollywood because you have power, if you can get people to jump through hoops, but do you really have a real influence ultimately on the box office? And I mean, or, or release some movies and things like that. I was in the unique position of kind of being the person initially who kind of broke the internet into traditional studio uh, junkets and events and things like that, because I had a relationship with some people before 
uh, being online and because I was a little older and because I was working for Time Warner, I guess at some point, even though that relationship was very weird always. Yeah. Um, I was, I was the one who was the first one in essentially on the beach. <laughs> and so I was getting access that was pissing them off. Cause like, why does he get that kind of thing? They were getting stuff seemingly illegally, or, I mean, there were, there were always stories. Cause it was always like the thing about the, um, the star Wars screening, you know, it was yeah. always shrouded in mystery and, and creating a mystery about it was part of their thing. They liked the mystery. Apparently that was kind of the, the come yeah. up. So as an outsider, it was always kind of offensive on some level. Um, and there was envy that was real and there was stuff they did that was just wrong. Um, so all of that was happening at the same time. Yeah. And balancing it out. And then it became, you know, then person and the more and more position they got. I mean, the truth is I benefited from it as well. I was given, you know, I had more access than other people who are on the internet because I had built these other relationships and because I was somewhat more traditional, I guess, kind of. Um, there are people who still hate me from back then, but, um, um, you know, what, 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 how they perceive your value doesn't necessarily have to do directly with your value. Yeah. And when the internet was starting online and when the internet was starting with the movie business, it was really, they were scared of anal news. They were scared to death of anal news as they were scared later of Nikki Fink. Yeah. Who would run stuff and say anything at any time. And it didn't really matter whether it was steeped in truth. It was, you know, she had enough people following that the rumor, they were, she was able to launch rumors, some of them factual, some of them not. Same with Anacool News. Um, and so there was a fear. And then they started, they figured out, as they did with Nikki Fink as well, how to play them. And then it became, then it became like a thing of you had to figure out whether it was Guillermo loving Harry in a very real, real way, or Peter, or it was the studio just, fucking them by giving them stuff yeah you know giving them a movie for buttonamathon was a way of getting something positive for their movies and really had nothing to do with respecting them or thinking they were that important or whatever it was some ways some ways times it was to diffuse their needs sometimes it was to encourage them sometimes it was to take advantage of the publicity they could get they would use them in quotes and ads and stuff like that but um it's all very blurry at this point it is you know and yeah it's what's interesting to me is that you sort of had a shift where originally studios would they would run blurbs in their ads and you know and they would list the critic first and then their outlet and then i think ain't it cool news is one of the first si- times where they would run a blurb and just list the outlet because it wasn't any of the critics it would just be some random person in right. their comments section who said something yes. that they, they that did they take advantage run. of that yeah, it didn't last so long. Once the once the <laughs> drama happened at Sony, that ended. But yeah, what what drama specifically? The uh, fake critic that they kind of created for. Oh a movie. yeah. <laughs> uh, when that happened, everybody got much more careful about how they were they were running at those quotes. But so, they still run. If you look now today, if you look at ads on TV, we now have another generation since then, kind of, and it's Twitter comments. And there was a movie. I don't remember even what movie it was. Maybe it was uh, Lost uh, City, but. You know, they literally were running quotes from Twitter people about the movie. And you're like, what the hell is <laughs> like, really? You pull quotes off of Twitter? Yeah, yeah. But they did because that's what they, you know, they're, they don't know. No, nobody has the authority anymore. 
I, one of the challenges I've, I've faced with this project is, you know, there's sort of a new younger generation of people on, on the internet who came up before Ain't It Cool News and just describing this website, I think um, sometimes is greeted with some incredulity, like people like, what? No way that's true. You're making all this up. Like, yeah. this is not real, you know? And um, some people have said it's myth-making or that I'm making up things that aren't real. And, you know, there are times when I think the truth is hard to discern, you know, like these are, these are people who have lied many times. So what is the truth was a mixed bag in that regard. And, you know, it has been, and he, once he, once he decided to go straight as it were, or straighter, um, he started kind of wanting not to be associated with a lot of the behaviors that were there at Anacle News and would insist that they didn't exist when in fact, clearly they existed. It doesn't mean he was bad. It doesn't, you know, it was like, it wasn't a personal attack on Drew, but Drew took it as a personal attack a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. but his claims of things they, you know, there are things they clearly did do that I know for a fact they did. And I would say them and Drew would insist that never happened. You're just making it up. You're just trying to hurt us. You're just trying to whatever. And, um, you know, you try to clean up your resume essentially uh, because there was a time in Anacle News where it was the Wild Wild West. And then there was a time in Anacle News where it was, they were, you know, soliciting more, the two of them on top were much more integrated into the system than they were rebels. Yeah. They kind of stopped being rebels at some point because they had too many people they would piss off if they told the truth, you know, or told their real opinion or whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't talk about their opinion, but you know, that they, that there, there's a point where you get, you become part of it and it's no longer you being on the cutting edge and pushing. Did you ever catch yourself trying to edit what you said or thought about a film because of the way it's studio treated you? And I'll, I'll give you an example where I did this myself. I got invited to a screening of Semi-Pro uh, with Will Ferrell. <laughs> wow. And then I got to do a junket. Uh, they, they, because it was a basketball film, they actually came to, to UNC, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, because it's a basketball town, mm-hmm. um, to do a whole junket. And so I got to interview Will Ferrell. I got to interview the director. The director comes to the door. You know, it's a, it's a round table. And he just stops all of us and hits us with a question. You guys like the movie, right? <laughs> and everyone's nodding their head everyone including me and, and that really wasn't how i felt about the movie i thought it was a a decent c-tier will ferrell comedy but yeah. definitely not his best and you know but i got swayed and i you know i'll own that um did you ever feel that you were ever swayed you know if they're swayed and they're swayed um they, I, I had a unique position in all of it because I was known as Mr. Truth Teller and a bit of a jerk in that regard or direct or whatever, depending on your perspective of what I had said, you know, some people I was their favorite, some people I was their, their most hated. Um, but, you know, I remember having, being sat down with Anthony Minghella after I had panned Cold Mountain pretty badly and, you know, was sat down to have cocktails with him and I have a conversation and, you know, the first words out of his mouth were, I'm not defending my movie to you. Um, so there was, you know, I was in some ways I was a, um, the thing is it's weird because the real world did not know me enough to care. The industry who was reading me that way at the time did know that I was relentless and, and jerk um, or whatever. I was tough and not willing to bend in that way. So, you know, 
I was, I was taking more, I was given more credibility. Did I, did I, you know, if you're put in a room with somebody, my favorite story about that is um, Battlefield Earth. Mm. When Battlefield Earth was coming out, we'd all seen it. Everybody hated it uniformly. And they decided to put us in a room at the Four Seasons with John Travolta in town. It wasn't like a junket junket, but there were maybe 10 of us around a round table with John Travolta. And they bring in John Travolta, who we didn't really have access to back then at all. And we're talking, he's telling us about the movie and we'd all seen the movie and we already, already hated it, but we're all happy to be in a room with John Travolta, who's very charming and very sweet and whatever. And, um, and talented and people liked him for other things, just hated this movie. <laughs> and finally, we'd managed to go through an entire hour with John Travolta where nobody said a word about the movie. Everybody was talking to him about other things. You know, we we're kind of like sharing whose question was next or whatever. And so he's getting up to leave and he said, so y'all never said, did you like the movie? And one of the people said, John, we love you. <laughs> and it was the most horrible thing and the most hysterical thing and the most brilliant thing all at the same time. Um, so yeah, you, you know, you, you're you, the like, look, I do, I started doing a, a, a pretty regular uh, interview series for about 10 years, uh, DP 30. And my whole thing was to just talk about the work. And if you're talking about the work, for me, it wasn't really about what I thought as a film critic. I wasn't there to benefit the movie. I wasn't there to promote the movie. I wanted access to talent so we could really have a conversation about why they make movies, how they make movies, what they care about, what's interesting yeah. to them. For me, that was the whole thing. It was 30 minutes. It was very unique when it started. Now it's become a thing because of Twitter, you know, Zoom and the and the whatever that everybody is doing everything online with video in 30 minutes, but or an hour or whatever. But uh, I was, you know, singular at the time, and it's there were definitely movies that I did not like. There were some movie, a lot of movies I turned down, talent I turned down because I hated the movie so much I couldn't have the conversation. Yeah, honestly, I couldn't be on it because ultimately they do all ask you on camera or off whether you like their movie and what you really thought particularly like at Toronto or something where they're still selling the movie or Sundance, they're trying to figure out what they're, you know, so they're trying to get an angle on what people think in terms of selling it. But um, so there are some things I turned down, but um, it's hard, you know, and you don't, and in some ways you feel dishonest or I would feel dishonest by not being, by saying, you know, by the way, I hate your movie, <laughs> but you can't because it's another human being, you know, you're not really there to torture somebody. You're there yeah. to have a conversation and sometimes the movie is not good or you booked it and the movie, you know, turned out not to be as good as you thought. You see the movie the night before and all of a sudden you have talent coming in the next day and, you know, it's, it's being rude to your guest. Uh, it's just not something you can do. Yeah. And so you have to moderate that. I mean, I, it's listening to all the podcasts, not all of them, but listen to podcasts out there. It's funny how you can, you know, people have different degrees of honesty about these things, but even Howard Stern, who is the most graphic, the most direct, the most unwilling to ask the most hard question, you know, and, and be very, very tough in that way. You never hear him say to a guest, you know, well, you know, your movie sucked. Yeah. But <laughs> um, so I remember I was Robin interview with Jack Black and, and Rich Wick Linkletter for uh, later for um, what was that movie? Bernie. Oh, and yeah. they came into the room and I, I liked the movie very much. And I really like both of them very much. But um, I really, it, it was right after, um, uh, what was it? Gulliver's Travels that Jack Black had done. 
Yeah. And so as we were sitting down, I made a joke about Gulliver's, Gulliver's Travels. And Jack just said, and this is really before we were doing the interview interview, but it's like, why, why did you do that? You brought up my biggest flop. You brought up the thing that really hurts me. And it was like, he would, and it took us a little while to get back to some sort of equilibrium because I hurt his feelings basically by bringing up his bomb. I was kind of being jovial and buddy, buddy kind of thing and too, a little too intimate perhaps, but um, you know, there's still people. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, you talk about how you kind of have to say things that aren't nice. And we have very few paid film critic positions in the world. And so you have a lot of people on Twitter who they write for no one. No one's paying them. No one ever will. <laughs> but they think they're film critics so that, that I think they just think they have to be assholes all the time to everyone. There are people like that. And it's uh, it's a little it's a little rough. It makes life a little unhospitable just being online. You, I kind of get exhausted by it sometimes. The amount of hate and what's interesting too is the way they'll do an about face. Like we found out this week something that I knew about Bruce Willis for a while, which is that you know he's he's had cognitive issues and that's why I was doing these quickie movies to make money before mm-hmm. he was not able to work anymore. And now everyone's changing the narrative and they're like no one should ever make fun of bruce willis like i saw you personally making fun of bruce willis like last week it, it's almost like maybe instead of being nicer to bruce willis now that you know it's not a grand idea to, to do uh maybe try to just be nicer to people in general unless <laughs> it is your job to actually review a movie well you know there's something about writing a nasty turn that is enjoyable. And when you come up with a phrase or an idea or a line or whatever that people remember, that's, that's good. There's something, there's a turn on to it. Um, but it's gotten me bounced from, you know, it's gotten me into real trouble with studios there. You know, yeah. My relationship with Warner brothers was shredded over my writing on Watchmen, which is a decade ago already, <sighs> but I never, my relationship with that studio, which was really, really good for a long time, uh, completely shredded by Watchmen and never recovered. So, you know, someday uh, somebody will come in and go, oh, David Poland, I grew up watching him or whatever, reading him. And then I'll be back in and everybody will love each other again. But right now, you know, for, for years now, it was I've been held over the spit because I said things about Watchmen. I've said things about Watchmen that were so un, were considered unkind. And at one point I wrote about the marketing department not avoiding uh, uh, the blue guy. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, wrote a little ditty of, you know, who's afraid of the big blue cock was my, to the tune of the three little pigs, you know, and, um, it stuck. People remembered it. They didn't like that. (laughs) That was brought up to me for years, literally brought, spoken to me back. Oh, remember you wrote that thing and it apparently hurt people's feelings. How much of that do you think is actually motivated by you? or motivated by making an example of you, you know, the, the kind of raise your head and show it to the other critics. Like, well, they never, I don't think they've ever shown my head to anybody. I don't think they've ever said, Oh, we're killing David Poland. And I've not written up. I don't write about it. You know, and it's not like I go, Oh, Warner brothers is being mean to me. Ooh. Um, so I don't know if they've got any benefit. No, I think they're just real human beings who some of them, you know, and of course I think there've been three regimes at Warner brothers, publicity since our marketing since i've been there yeah. since i did that um but you know you have 
it's true with everything still, you know, if you have a relationship with the people in charge or relationship with this one, relationship with that one, that colors the, the whole thing. And if they, you know, if they decide you're a jerk and then the next general group comes in having like, for instance, I like to, I go by the name David, right? People call me, there are people call me Dave. There are people who called me Dave for 30 years, but when they do it, they're from people I know from 30 years ago. I'm like, whatever, it's a, I give, they get a pass, right? But when their assistant, their fourth, their fourth assistant, since I, they started calling me Dave, is calling me Dave, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, you don't, it's, they don't have the carte blanche of calling me whatever they want. They're not my yeah. friends. You don't but there's an intimacy that. that we're always trying to create in this business. You know, there's always this kind of like, oh, I know what to, I, I, he, my boss calls him Dave, so I call him Dave. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but it's hard to you know you don't want to be a jerk and say don't call me dave call me david uh but that's the way it, it kind of rolls downhill so if you get a reputation at a studio of being somebody they're unhappy with and they don't want to there's they're concerned about giving you access because you're going to kill them somehow um that rolls to the next generation until somebody breaks it in some way yeah yeah so you're still on the outs for that movie which i feel like is it's more than 10 years old <laughs> seems like forever but yeah that's when i i mean it, it i was it was the studio i was closest to for years and now it's been the studio that i'm probably least close to for oh. years over that event and also you know then they were pissed off at me because i thought you know i didn't think batman was gonna do it but dark knight was gonna do as much business as it did and god forbid i should you know have an opinion about that I mean, a lot of things are really, everything moves. Yeah, you really hurt that movie's box office. Dude. Exactly. I killed their box office. Well, you know, it's like, uh, uh, what's his name? From uh, from The Hangover, the director. Writer, Todd director, Phillips. Todd Phillips, the lovely Todd Phillips. When that movie was coming out, they were very, very high in that movie. It was going to do huge numbers, they thought. And I was, I was like, it'll do good numbers, but it won't do. I was doing a lot more box office focus back then. And I said, you know, it'll do good numbers, but it was not going to, I don't think it's going to do what they think it's going to do, yeah. essentially. And Todd came in and actually came over and did a, a sit down with me at DP30. And um, after we were finished shooting, he really wanted to talk about the box office. And we talked about the box office and why I didn't think it was going to do so much. And then it did all that. It did a huge number, right? Yeah, stupid money. So then there's a, the second interview with Todd was for, for, that, for the second movie. And I, it, and he basically was drinking. He was had a glass of wine in his hand and had been drinking all day. And he shredded me in the interview and he, on camera. You're the worst box office prognosticator in the whole world. Blah, 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 blah. You know, like angry, angry. And he you know, was going to buy my website and put me out of business and blah, 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 blah. And it was funny to me, but it was very nasty. But I, I ran it anyway. And people were like, oh, we're, he's so, he's so uh, brave putting that up. I'm like it is what it is, you know. And it turned <laughs> out is. I had the exact number, and I was the only person who had the exact number on Hangover Two. I guessed before it came out what Hangover Two would do worldwide, and I was within ten million dollars. <laughs> okay, that's that's solid. You know, Todd has never done another interview with me. <laughs> no one ever. No one because he never that. was going to acknowledge that I was right after he was so intense that I was wrong. You know. Yeah. No one knew the first Hangover was going to do it did like it well, exploded. the studio was very very high on it i gotta say the studio was closer than i was yeah you know i thought there was kind of a cap to an r-rated comedy at the time and i thought there were you know i thought it would do half of what it ended up doing and so but that upset him i mean todd was vulnerable to people prognosticating at the time and so he was just he was it hurt his feelings it hurt his sense of you know until he became very very rich and and 
did whatever he wanted to do. Yeah, because he had <laughs> he had points on that movie too, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. so wow. Have so have you ever been in a situation where the critical lens was turned on you, and and how how did that feel? There have been times where people have written about me. There were, you know, and actually, I guess it's now 16 or 17 years that I I've, don't talk to or read uh, Jeff Wells because there was a story somebody was doing for LA Magazine about uh, Oscar bloggers, uh, a phrase that I hate, but nonetheless, they were doing an Oscar blogger story. And the guy came in from New York and he met with the five or six of us out here who they thought they should meet with. And he and I spent like four hours together. We had lunch, we had chatting, but, uh, but I never said a negative word about any of the others. I never took them down. I decided I was going to be the high road and I was going to just be straight, play it straight. And I gave, you know, I was told stories, but it was fun stories. It wasn't nasty stories or this one's an idiot or whatever. None of that kind of talk. And then I get a call um, from the uh, fact checker that, um, well, is it true that you um, kicked Jeff Wells out of your car, moving vehicle on the way between Salt Lake City Airport and Sundance? And it was like, what? <laughs> and it's turned out that Jeff had decided he was going to tell a bunch of stories that he thought were going to take me down. And um, did you kick him out of a moving car? No, it was. He, in fact, he was stalking. It was actually that last year of Sundance that we got fired. And um, he was stalking the house and he was calling up and my mostly women on my staff at the time, who were up there working on, the, on, the, show, on the, the site. And he would call up and say, I'm coming over there. I'm coming over there. And they'd be like, who the fuck is this? And he would like, and he wrote, he put in his column. He took, he went out and took a picture of our house, which was in Deer Valley and put a, you know, create an animated sign in front of it saying, no one come here if you're not roughcut.com, whatever it was. I mean, it was all just nasty. I mean, it was nasty, nasty behavior. And he was making it sound like I was attacking him. And the story about the car was that he tried, he, he, he forced himself into the car. Our rough cut car had gone to the airport to pick up four or five people who are coming in front of town. And he got, it, he got in the van without telling anybody. And the driver of the van, who was a woman, mostly women in the van, said to, called me up and said, I'm scared of this guy, <laughs> um, you know, I don't want him in the car. And I said, okay, we'll tell him to get out of the car. He wouldn't get out of the car. Then I said, put him on the phone with me. And I said, Jeff, if you have to sit there at the airport and I have to drive to the airport and come pull you out of that car, I will do that. Get out of our car. You're not invited. You didn't ask. People are afraid of you, get out. And he got out eventually. And then it became me throwing him out of the moving vehicle. So um, I feel like there's a beginning to this story that we don't quite have yet, though. So what? Why was he mad at, in the in the beginning? Like, was he? What was going on? Was he obsessed with your critics? Was he? Well, Jeff and I always had this very intense, weird relationship. And you know, when I started doing the column, the reason he ended up doing a column back then was because they were imitating my column. So they basically hired him to do what I did, except that he was not as prolific as I was as a writer. He had a harder time filling column inches. So he would call me and pick a fight on the phone so he could record the fight and make that his column. And so he'd you know, like call me up and, what do you think of that movie you saw yesterday? And I would talk to him like I was talking to a friend or somebody, a colleague or whatever. And then he would publish it with also a rebuttal saying I was wrong and that kind of thing. And he did this over and over and over again. 
And, you know, there are nice, there are good things about Jeffrey and bad things about Jeffrey, but literally when that magazine article ended up coming out with, it became, the article became Jeffrey versus David was the article that was on the cover of the magazine. And I was like, if he's going to destroy our career, if he's willing to destroy himself to destroy me also, I can't have anything to do with him anymore. So wow. I then stopped reading him, stopped talking to him. I had been told for years to stay away from him by studio people or whatever, because he was, you know, Jeff has his own set of issues, but um, that was kind of it for me personally. I was no longer going to put myself in a position to be hurt by him because he was so reckless with everything. Because so it could have just been a nice, stupid article that nobody ever noticed. It so. seems that the pastime, the national pastime among a lot of online critics is uh, to be blocked by Jeffrey Wells from his website. Don't know. That that's I mean, literally, I have not read him for 17 years. People actually, um, more than 17 years now, I guess. Maybe it's 16. Anyway, but people tell me about him still. People will sometimes still put, put us together because there was a time where it was Jeff and Dave, Jeff and Dave, Jeff and Jeff, Jeff and, you know, people did that. Studio people did that too. Um, so separating from him was a very distinct choice. And, but I still get sent stuff every once in a while. So the only thing I've read is stuff that's sent to me, but I don't keep up with it because if I read it, eventually I'm going to feel a need to speak to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm out of that business. I'm not in the Jeff Wells business in any way, shape or form. And we were friendly, you know, like we had Thanksgiving dinner together, things like that. Wow. Thanksgiving with Jeff Wells. What was that like? <sighs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to start because it's not fair for me to, if, if I'm not acknowledging him, then it, the idea of like putting him up for that. But there are a lot of Jeff Wells stories that are some of which are very public because he would make them public. And, you know, his the, the what was it, the emotional hat or whatever it was and when he left a hat on the bed at uh, Sundance and he thought that meant he was reserved for the next year <laughs> for the hotel. <laughs> like, <laughs> crazy stuff. There's some really good Jeff Wells stories, but I'm not going to say them in public. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> it's almost like Rick James stories on uh, the Dave Chappelle show. Yeah. Ask Mark Web Mark Ebner about Jeff Wells. Or... <laughs> <laughs> then you get some stories. All right, then. Well, man. Um, so you now are run you're running your article on Substack and that's where people can, can follow you the most. If they want to support you, if they want to read your work. Yes. I, I was, I spent a year consulting and that did not work out the way I wanted it to work out. And now we're, so I started writing the column again. Uh, basically I'd not been writing this a daily kind of thing for years and started in October at Substack under David Poland. And um, at this point it's still free <laughs> because that's how I would like it to stay. I think that all these, unfortunately all these, and I subscribe to a bunch of them, but all these, uh, newsletters trying to get you know a few hundred dollars a year is, are going to pile up eventually no matter how good they are how mediocre they are it's it's hard it's a lot of money at some point yeah um so i'm trying i, I would like to keep it free over, going forward we'll see if that works um but yeah now i'm doing that every, every five days a week at least it's, and enjoying it very happy it's very hard right now to make any amount of money uh doing writing for anyone yes uh, and I've been very fortunate. Again, you know, people, the weird, the funny thing is Movie City News, when we started at, we started October 18th, I think it was of 2002. Um, we had an advertiser from the beginning, Warner Brothers. There you go. There's the irony. Was our first advertiser. And they were already trying to advertise on, um, with me somehow. Because <laughs> I was still, there was still like a version of me writing in that period when I was at the film festival and whatever. So they were like interested in, in Oscar advertising 
And so they were from the day one, we had a Warner Brothers ad up and then other people joined us and we were very fortunate. We were the kind of the breakthrough advertising. Harry, it's funny, ironically, again, Harry and Ada Cool News had a much more robust advertising effort than we did, but we actually did quite well for a number of years uh, with Oscar advertising, particularly on Movie City News from the very beginning. And the newsletter in turn um, had advertising pretty much from the beginning also, which is nice. Knowing so that, that, knowing that a lot of the writers were not paid for their work, like how, how does that sit with you? The whole not paying for people's work thing is, I mean, it became a much bigger issue uh, in the early aughts <laughs> because there was money floating around. So when Any Cool News had advertising every day or Movie City News, I mean, Movie City News never didn't pay anybody. And when we were Time Warner, Rough Cut, everybody got paid and it was like a very different animal. We had a very big budget for a small thing. Um, but Rough Cut in its time, we paid pretty well and consistently, we didn't hire, we didn't bring anybody in for free. I wrote, it's funny, when I started the hot button all those years ago on Movie City on Rough Cut, I worked for free doing the daily. I was doing a weekly for being for being paid. And I wanted to do the daily, they couldn't afford it. Their budget was locked till the end of that year. So I didn't get paid for the first four or five months. And then I got paid, which was good. But um, yeah, it's 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 hard. People talk about this a lot because, you know, they say if you're a professional writer and you're not getting paid, you're not a professional writer anymore. Um, I kind of have a, of the school of if you want to do it, if you're if you need to do it, do it. If you don't get paid, do it anyway, because you're trying to get paid and somebody needs to know what you have. Somebody it's hard for a if you have a, a budget, if you have a, a site without a huge budget or any budget, it's your money or you're making a little bit of money on advertising or a little bit of money here or there, um, you know, paying people $100 per whatever, or $200 or $500, um, it, it adds up quickly. And, you know, you can spend a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and not everybody can afford to do that. On the other hand, so there, there's not going to ever be enough money for the number of writers who are out there. If you really think you're good, if you really think you're going to create value for somebody, doing it for free for a little while is not a terrible thing. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not fun. It's not, you know, it's not the ideal situation and there are people who will take advantage of it, but, um, you know, you kind of got to know where, uh, where the opportunity is. Yeah. And there are very few of us, you know, I have a brand that's existed for a long time. The funny thing for me is the hardest part right now is that people don't know I'm back doing it. <laughs> so whatever, I built up at Movie City News. A lot of it's dissipated over the last couple of years by not doing Movie City News. And so now they're, you know, when they find out I have a newsletter, they're like, what, really? And I'm like, yeah, I've been doing it for six months. Um, but that, you know, in the old days, somebody was out promoting it and spending money promoting me or whatever Time Warner was or MCN was or whatever, not happening as much. And also there's less crossover now. So if you're not like the Penske, Penske owns all the trades. If you're not in that family, you don't exist for them. They avoid mentioning you even. You don't, they, they don't want you to, you know, they have a competitor for everything. So I always built, when I built Movie City News, I built it on the idea that I wanted to expose other writers to the world. You know, we did the daily uh, links to, new, to other people's stories. The whole idea was we wanted to find the best stuff on the web, whoever wrote it, and put that on the web. 
and give people a chance to find it. And we found a lot of people started with us or through links on our, our site and we built careers with Movie City News. People, now people won't do that. Even people who link are linking within their own, you know, the guy from the LA Times does a newsletter and then he links only to new LA Times stories. Yeah, or, for SEO purposes. Right, or Puck has his stories and they link to their friends, you know. Uh, and the same thing with, I was going back to what I said about Drudge a long time ago was, you know, Drudge has his people who he will link to, some of whom are the most horrible journalists, non-journalist hacks of all time. Roger Friedman, he likes to link to. Roger Friedman is a disaster area. I'm still happy I got him fired at Fox. Let's let's <laughs> talk about that. Let's talk about that. So one thing I had to cut. But Drudge from, links to him every week. One of the things I had to cut from uh, episode six uh, when we were talking about the Wolverine DVD or, or screener link yeah. controversy was one of the people that rep- reviewed this illegal copy of the film was Roger Friedman. This was a Fox film and he was writing for a blog that was owned by Fox news. He was literally just biting the hand that feeds him. And a pe- he was making crazy money. Fox yes, was paying was. him six figures according to his own lawsuit yeah. when he sued them. And so um, <laughs> he was making an absurd amount of money for a journalist and he did something absurdly stupid. Uh, well, he, was to, already, he was already a corrupt journalist to begin with. So, you know, he, Roger always had this relationship with, with uh, Harvey Weinstein that, you know, they denied constantly, but he, you know, Harvey Weinstein ended up buying one of his movies and uh, Harvey sent him places and flew him places and whatever. So this very tight relationship with the Weinsteins, which were part of, you know, his benefit to his benefit. So that was bad. He was a bad guy to begin with. I mean, he would, he was just a bad guy to the point where there are people who I hate. There was somebody once at Sundance who I really don't get along with. And I defended her against her against Roger because Roger had written something so heinous and false about her the day before that she wouldn't be in the same room with him. Um, and I physically had to separate them at one point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Roger, crazily, this thing was on the streets of New York. I happened to be in New York. I went down to Canal Street and got a copy of that that tape, that DVD of the movie. I did not review it, <laughs> um, but Roger did, and he made himself. And I was the one who pushed the Fox button. I was very close with a lot of people at Fox that they had to fire him. Yeah, because it would have been to, to claim that anybody else would be in trouble and they're going to let him get away with it um, was impossible. And we would rip them to shreds for that. And so they fired him. And I'm very happy <laughs> well you know the way they handled that movie after the after the leak too it was strange because they wouldn't screen it no and so no one was able to review the film but everyone was expected to review the film and yeah. so the, the only way you could review the film is to review the pirated copy well i got it i i will say the one time i screwed up <laughs> as a critic uh was when i reviewed um hostile two Hostile 2, the Hostile 2 review, which, you know, of course, as soon as I did it, every, everybody jumped to their feet to say that I was, you know, such a hypocrite, so horrible, such a terrible person. But basically, I got it. I was in Seattle at that time, and it was on the streets of Seattle. And I went out and found it because I wanted to see whether it was actually on the streets, because I didn't know whether it was. And I got a copy of it. I wrote about that. And then I decided that I would never watch Hostile 2 in a theater, because I hate Hostile, and I don't like the tone of the whole thing. And I decided, okay, I'm just going to watch this in my hotel room and at least I'll have seen it. So I'll know something about it. And I was so offended by the movie that I wrote about it and I shouldn't have. 
and uh, the studio was not happy with me. We survived that, unlike the other things at Warner Brothers. Um, we, you know, managed to get over that hatred of each other for that moment, but um, or maybe not. I feel like <laughs> those Lionsgate, people weren't there anymore. Yeah, yeah. Huh? I feel like Lionsgate. They they need the press, so they're not going to be too mad. Well, no, they were very very upset, and they were, and and Eli was very upset, and understandably, you know, it was the truth is what I reviewed was the movie. So the whole thing that it wasn't really the movie and I saw it on the screen, it would be different and all that kind of stuff. For me, it was sexual violence, male gaze, sexual violence of a level that I had not seen, seen from anybody in a studio in a very long time. And I thought it was disgusting. And I did feel that the director was getting off on it. And I felt the show, the movie show basically felt like a guy who wanted to torture women who couldn't, but he could do it in the movies. And it was so funny. And then, you know, it was like, Oh, this, you know, there was a scene where a woman was um, sliced slowly above somebody else so that they could yeah. bathe in her blood. The way he did it was disgusting. You know, ripping, what's her name's face off with a chainsaw and then giggling about it, disgusting. I mean, I, I find that movie deeply, deeply offensive. And ironically, it was filled with these good actresses who were, some of them were feminists even. Um, but um, I shouldn't have reviewed it off a tape. I should have waited, but the studio, the studio wanted me to pull it down. Then they wanted me to come back to LA and watch it in the theater and come, they wanted me to come to the premiere. I was like, I'm not coming to the premiere. <laughs> it's, it's tough to know. It's tough to know with that film, whether, you know, it flopped because of the leaks or it flopped because so many people sort of had their knives out about Eli Roth. It flopped because time. it flopped, yeah. I mean, it wasn't good. So in reality, piracy is a real thing. I don't think there's ever been, I think Wolverine was hurt to some degree, but generally I don't think anything's flopped because of piracy. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, and piracy has become, you know, part of the cost of doing business at this point. And it's very real. And they're, you know, the technology, there's a part, there's a group of people who are, who work for the studios who are, you know, on the piracy thing every day, that's their entire lives. And they do a very good job and they've been good about getting the public. I don't think the public really wants the pirate things, yeah. you know, but we create a situation where the public can't help themselves sometimes or couldn't, particularly back then. And it's, um, you know, but like, I remember there was that thing where you could use it kind of like a HBO or whatever, a, a cable box and just go to any movie you wanted instantly. <laughs> that was scary. That was like, I can understand why that would upset people. Yeah, yeah. I I had someone come to my theater and we had flat screen TVs and he was meeting with someone and he brought one of these boxes with him and he like hooked it up to the thing and he was like showing him that he could, you can watch the movies they're playing here. And I was like, get <laughs> that shit out yeah. of my building now. Well, like, funniest oh, no, thing is, yeah. Funniest yeah. thing is when they invite critics and there were like maybe five of you in a room. In one case, there was just me and my girlfriend, then girlfriend in a room. And they have a security guy watching you the whole time. Like you're going to pull out, like I'm going to sit in a room with, you know, Manola Dardis and, uh, and Todd, Todd, uh, Todd from Variety. And they're going to pull out their cameras and start taping the movie. <laughs> really, guys? You have to watch us? You know, it, when there are a hundred people or you fill the room with the public or whatever, you understand why they need to do it. But like, it was, it's a, sometimes a little crazy. They're like, really? No, I mean, they can be very careful with all that stuff. But they still are. I mean, they're still, we're obsessed with it. They're still, um, I mean, look, Spider-Man probably didn't get nominated because they didn't put it on the Academy screening thing quickly enough, the platform quickly enough. 
Um, but Sony was convinced that the security wasn't strong enough and didn't put it on immediately and probably cost them a nomination. What can you do, man? Poor Spider-Man. Will they be Poor. okay? Yeah. You think Sony will be okay with Spider-Man? I, I feel Tom like Rothman is evil. Uh. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I feel like Tom Rothman's uh, come around on those comic book movies. If you used to hate them now, I, I feel like they're everything to him. Well, Tom's thing was always about, it was all, he always wanted the comic book movies. I mean, Tom Rothman is responsible for um, really the, the current, I mean, he's not responsible for CG, but he is responsible for hiring Brian for X-Men. Yeah. You know, so he was the one who started hiring indie filmmakers to make comic book movies, um, which ended up happening. You know, that he was the guy who did that. So got to give him some credit. Some credit. You know, you wonder if he did that to hire their vision or if he did that because he knew he could steamroll them. He did. No, he hired them because he, he didn't steamroll Brian ever. As far as I know. I think that would be a, a excessive comment. He's there's people, other people who steamrolled, but and he hired some pretty bad directors at times. But no, I think his he had the idea that if you had quality drama inside of all this CG stuff or all this effect stuff, that you would get an interesting, a much more interesting movie than just you know make than even Dick Donner, you know. And yeah. I love Dick Donner Superman and whatever, but you know it wasn't they getting another conventional voice putting men in tights was not going to necessarily be the breakthrough thing. Yeah. And he's the one who started that. Chris, it, you know, you wouldn't have had the dark Knight if it weren't for Brian Singer doing X-Men. Yeah. yeah. So you got to give Tom credit for that actually, but they don't because they hate him. <laughs> and he, and he could have been, he was a prick on certain things and he did, you know, he has sent other directors to shadow directors and, you know, a lot of skeevy things have happened on, on studio movies that Tom Rothman has been ultimately in charge of. So he's not like Mr. Pure Hands, but he, you know, he's also not a complete jerk at all. <laughs> he's actually quite a smart guy. And he also was very good at keeping money in place at Fox. Yeah. At Fox, it was always money first, awards and everything else second. And they did very well with him. It just, yeah. you know, hit the wall eventually. As we all do, man. Well, hey... I just want to thank you for taking this time to uh, to share part of your story and, and, you know, just letting me know how it worked from your perspective. You know, it sounds like you're still doing it. And I, I'm glad to hear that your newsletter is coming out and that it's still for free. And uh, well, we did. I, did, I saw, listened to your podcast. I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts, but uh, hearing the Ain't a Cool News story from the folks at Ain't a Cool News was too much for me to resist. <laughs> So I gobbled that up and I sent you a note saying, oh, well, maybe that is right or wrong or whatever. But, um, um, you know, it was fun to listen to the, it, 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 as, much, as conflictual as it was between us all back in the late nineties, particularly, and as angry as Drew can be, um, it was, it's kind of fun hearing that history and that people will, might remember it someday because it's mostly forgotten already, sadly. Sadly, but and the reason I think it's sad is because I think there's a lot of young people today that need to hear this story so that they can learn these lessons. You know, like going back to Drew's anger, you don't need to be that angry. Drew will admit that he did not need to be that angry. And I think that there's a lot of angry uh, people, angry writers, angry influencers who I don't think they realize it, that eventually they're going to burn their last bridge. If, if they just continue to rage with the anger, you know. And On the other hand, people were quoting their Devin Pharisee again. So there you go. It's, you, anybody can be reclaimed apparently 
at some point. It's very scary a little bit. But yes, I mean, I think there's a loss. I think generally the, the current media world is completely lacking history and not interested even in finding out what the history is in 1997, 1990, 2000, much less on 1950 and 1930. So, yeah. um, you know, I'd like to see more of that because I think it all informs truth ultimately. Ultimately, you know, I think that the late 90s to, to the late aughts was a, a nexus point for film journalism with the, everything that was changing radically with yes. the online, with lack of print. Um, so, yeah. Well, you could not, you couldn't get the interview. You couldn't go to the junket. You couldn't do anything when I started in the late 90s. And um, now, you, you know, now it's the primary thing. So you saw the budget shift, you saw the, the priority shift, everything shifted, and now it's just normal. Yeah. You know, now everything's the internet, so go figure. You've been beyond generous with me, and I want to thank you for talking with me. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it, man. Happy to do it. It's, it's uh, every once in a while, it's fun to talk about the history. All right. That was our show. Thanks again for listening. And again, if you want to check out David Poland's Substack, uh, which he's created to sort of resurrect Movie City News, I've put a link in the show description here. Also, if you've got $2 in your PayPal account or your Venmo account, just kicking around, consider donating it to Comics for Kids so that we can buy kids some comic books. It will make them very happy which in turn should make you very happy. Hopefully it'll just brighten your day. So thank you guys. And uh, I got to get back to work on the show and we'll see you soon. <laughs>